Almighty Father and Everlasting One, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are the gracious God of the universe. We thank you that you are the one who bent down to us and condescended to us, giving us your Son. And as we look now at the book of Genesis, at what the scriptures say concerning you, the God who created heaven and earth, we ask that you would help us to see what you have said in these beginnings about your character as the God who is gracious. We pray, O Lord, that you would be with us by the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would aid us as we study these things. We so pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, in reading Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As Genesis so begins that way, it demonstrates as we have already seen that God is righteous, that he's holy, that he's good, that he's sovereign. And now we look that he is gracious. God as the gracious God of Genesis. What is grace? That would be a good first question to ask. Grace is unmerited, divine, converting, and sanctifying power given to fallen humans for their regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Grace goes to fallen human beings. When God communicates this to his elect, in which is reserved grace, he is conceived as willing to communicate himself to the fallen creature from what we will call gratuitous love or gracious love, without any merit in the creature. And in reality, despite the creature's demerit, regardless of how fallen that creature is, God is gracious nonetheless to his elect fallen human beings. What does it mean to be gracious? Well, God is seen as gracious in two ways to his elect people. When his people stand objectively related to his graciousness, he bestows all things liberally upon us, showing favor or benevolence. This is the favor by which he elected people. Their predestination in him or receiving his people as accepted in Jesus Christ. In a second way, it's what God gives his people. Not only how he views them in Jesus Christ, but what he gives them as what he works in them effectively. He works in them regeneration. He works in them faith. He works in them hope and love. It is redemption that is applied to his elect individually. He provided much for his people all through Genesis. And as we look at these two ways in which God is gracious, both in electing his people and providing these gracious things to his elect, there are a number of places throughout the scriptures that demonstrate that God is gracious in the book of Genesis. First, it begins in Genesis 
This is the first note of God's grace to fallen human beings. He provided the good news of the coming of the kingdom for sinners. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the echo of the gospel, or as what we would call in theology, the proto-evangelium, the before gospel. It's a Latin term that means uh, the first time the gospel was ever heralded before we have some of the full statements concerning the gospel by Christ talking about repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is the gospel. Here, it demonstrates the manner in which such would take place. From the seed of the woman, from the lineage of the woman, Jesus would come. The mediator would come. And he would destroy the works of the devil and crush the devil's head. And even towards the end of this chapter, in chapter 3, verse 21, even after Adam and Eve had fallen, even after God had cursed them, he still provided for them atonement. He provided atonement for sinners. It says in verse 21, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now at that particular point, it could have ended. God could have been just with men and could have been done. He was not obliged in any way to save them. And yet, he did. God was gracious to Adam and Eve. And he provided atonement for them in killing and sacrificing two animals for their sins, took those skins and clothed them or gave them a covering. Remember, the mercy seat on the ark is a covering. The blood of Christ is a covering. These are coverings that are given to fallen sinners. He provides atonement for them to make them and reconcile them right before God. In Genesis chapter 6, the scriptures say that he gave grace to Noah. Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Hebrew idea here is to find something that has fallen upon him. Something that fell upon Noah. God's grace fell on Noah, and Noah recognized that grace as a result of God's condensation to him. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. God had saved Noah. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 8, it says that even when he was on the ark, he remembered Noah. Remembering for God in this way is saving him. Genesis 8, 1 says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. God saved him. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 5, that God, quote, saved Noah in that way. Then we come to 
Genesis chapter 15 and 17, where God's covenant of grace is seen as gracious. He condescends to Abraham and brings to him the graciousness of his covenant. How does God begin with establishing the covenant of grace with Abram? Well, in Genesis 15 and verse 1, it says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. When he deals covenantally with his people, when he deals with them by bringing covenant to them, he tells Abraham that he, he himself, is the reward. He himself is the end of the covenant in and of itself. It continues in Genesis 15 and verse 18, and it says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So God himself is the exceedingly great reward, and on that day, he condescended to bring Abram grace in that covenant. In Genesis 17 and verse 2, it says, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. He will bring that covenant to Abram, to Abraham. And his covenant was given to Abraham unilaterally. He brought grace. Abraham didn't merit it. Abraham did not create it. He didn't do something before God that earned it. God himself said, I will make my covenant between me and you. In Genesis 17:7, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So this God, who could have wiped out man immediately, instead came down to establish the covenant of grace, the everlasting covenant that would never end with Abraham and his descendants after them in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Genesis 17 and verse 13, God instructs them that the sign of this covenant would be in the very flesh of all of his household. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. It was not something that God brought up for a time, but it was everlasting and it is fulfilled as we'll see in the mediator of Genesis 3.15. The scriptures say that God remembered Abraham in chapter 19. Genesis 19.29 And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, and he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. God, the creator of the universe, remembered Abraham, this insignificant speck on this planet. It's an amazing thing that the scriptures record for his people that God is a God who remembers them, who even takes note of them, if you think of it in that way. He provided grace for his people in the wilderness among their enemies in Genesis 21:33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Even in the wilderness, even among the barren plains, God gave Abraham grace 
and Abraham called out on the name of the Lord. The scripture calls Abraham the friend of God in this way. He also preserves his righteous elect in the covenant of grace. In Genesis 19, 21 and 22, And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. When Lot left, when he escaped, demonstrates that God preserves his people and will do good to his people and will act justly with his people and will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. God is very gracious to his people. He intervenes with them. And he intervenes with them when they failed in the various situations that we find the patriarchs in in the book of Genesis. They fail many times. Here are two examples. You remember when Abram went down into Egypt and Sarai was taken by Pharaoh because Abram lied. Well, God could have just taught him a lesson and let him go and all sorts of bad things would have happened. But Genesis 12:17 says, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God was working and fighting on behalf of his elect servant. In Genesis chapter 20, in verse 6, it says, And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And this was against Abimelech, with the same situation where here was Abram's wife, Sarai, Sarah, at this time, taken by Abimelech, and God intervened that no harm would come morally or physically to Abram's wife his elect servant. In Genesis 26 and verse 22, it says, And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac had gone from place to place, trying to find a place to settle. And God helps him in this way, even amidst his enemies. And they dug a well, and God filled that well. And he prayed and thanked God for what God had done in preserving them in the wilderness. God preserves and fights and keeps and watches over and guards his elect servants. He also, amazingly, in spite of their sin, gives promises to them. For example, he gave the promise to Jacob, the deceiver. In Genesis 28 and verse 3, the blessing was given to him. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Echoing the very verses of Genesis in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 28:13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you to you and your descendants. So he blessed Jacob. He gave him promises. He told him he would multiply him. He told him he would give him land. He would bless him in every way, although Jacob was a deceiver. The scriptures in Genesis also demonstrate that God was gracious in that his angels preserved his servants wherever they went. 
Genesis 28 and verse 16 says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So even God was attending him. In Genesis 32, 1 and 2, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met with him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of their place Mahananai. It was a blessing that God preserved his elect servant, even sent his angels to attend unto him. God is very gracious in his dealings with his elect servants. He gave children to them. He gave bounty to them. Genesis 33 and verse 5. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Laban was amazed at Jacob's children and his family. And Jacob testified to God's grace that God had blessed him. Genesis 33 and verse 11 says, Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. This is when Jacob and Esau had met. Jacob was giving Esau uh, a bountiful gift that Esau wouldn't take. And he said, no, look, God has been gracious and dealt graciously with me. God, his grace was desired and his grace was used for blessing others, others of his elect people. Genesis 43 and verse 29 says that he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. This was when Joseph had seen his younger brother, Benjamin, and blessed him by the graciousness and blessing of God. Genesis, these are just some simple examples of how God is so gracious in saving in preserving, in giving blessing, in giving children, in giving bounty, all to his elect servants. God is gracious. But as we saw, he is gracious to his elect, and he is gracious to them by means of the covenant that he made with Abraham. All of his promises are set within that covenant. So even though we've seen all of these different acts of grace that God would accomplished with his elect servants, they are all performed in the middle of this covenant of grace. So let's turn to talk about that for a moment. The covenant of grace is that which God had condescended to bring to his people. When God condescends, that means he descends lower. It's like he bends down. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 7 and paragraph 1 says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. Blessedness and reward, exactly what God had told Abraham. He was his exceedingly great reward. That is the blessedness of the covenant. But it says, But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So God is gracious when he makes this covenant, and he makes these promises to his elect people, and keeps them. He alone is the great 
covenant keeper or promise keeper. The covenant of grace is a gracious pact, a gratuitous pact entered into, into Christ being God offended and man offending. The author of the covenant is God. And that is based on the mediator that he brought. The confession says in the same chapter, in paragraph 3, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all that are ordained under eternal life is Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. That is the covenant of grace. And so in this covenant that God makes with men, with the, his elect, through Christ, the contracting parties are God offended and man offending. That's how the covenant was placed together. Sin abolished the natural union that was created between the creator and the creature, between God and Adam initially. Man is not simply seen in the covenant of grace as a creature, but as a fallen, sinful creature that is dead in sin, helpless to spiritual good, a child of wrath, and alienated from God and any life in him. God condescends to bring those kinds of men into grace with him. And he does that by way of Genesis 3.15. He does that by way of mediator, the one who would come. The mediator of the covenant is Christ, the promised seed of the woman. In the first covenant, the covenant of works, there's no need of a mediator. There's no grace. There's no need of one to step in between because Adam had been on probation with God in order to effect or not effect God's will in the garden. But now as a result of sin, as a result of his disobedience, no covenant could be enacted without a mediator. For men, on account of God's holiness and justice, because men are inherently sinful, God must enact the covenant. He must bring the covenant of grace. And it must be a mediator that can effectuate an infinite sacrifice for sin, because sin is transgressed against an infinite God. And yet he has to also offer up a human nature as an infinite sacrifice for men. The blood of bulls and goats don't save. Someone must take up the ability to offer an infinite sacrifice in a human nature. The mediator in that, in that way must be both God and man to accomplish this. That is why Eve, in being so excited in Genesis chapter 4 about the one who was being born, thought the man that had been born was going to accomplish these things according to God's promise in Genesis 3. That was Cain. Jesus would not come until later. But such was made with Christ as a representative... And all his posterity. So Christ came as the representative for his elect, the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. He came on behalf of the seed of the woman to save his elect. To save those that God had eternally predestined to be elect 
to be happy in heaven, to be redeemed in the covenant of grace. As in Adam, everyone dies. So in Christ, as a representative for his group, they shall all be made alive. Now the covenant of grace is either instituted by God, which will happen once, or it is renewed by God, which will continually come to pass. It was first made with Abraham, though it was echoed in Genesis 3.15 in putting enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even though that was an echo of things to come, he actually makes this covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, 7 and 8, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now what does God promise here in the idea that God is the God of Abraham and the God of Abraham's descendants in the same manner? The idea that's being related is that God is putting a covenant, placing a covenant on Abraham as a federal relation, as a federal relationship. The father represents the household and the children. And God communicates his blessings, particularly to those who are elect, and also by way of external profession. Those who profess to be in the covenant of grace are always of two sorts. There are those who comply with it internally and really as a result of God's grace. And then there are others who do so externally, that is, in profession and visibility. Two ways. But he that externally and visibly complies with the covenant of grace actually appears and professes to do so really, even though he might not. But he's still in a covenant relationship with God, in the covenant of grace. So you have those like Abraham, for example, who have the covenant, of, covenant sign placed on him that, are, that he's internally and really elect and saved in the covenant of grace, receiving all the blessings of the covenant. And then you have people like Ishmael, who are like Esau. They are externally in the covenant of grace, having the mark of the covenant upon them, that they partake of some of the outward blessings, but not internally of the substance of the covenant, which is exactly why the scriptures put this covenant in this way, completely in Christ, only for the elect, ultimately receiving the benefits that way. So, the institution is given to Abraham. In Genesis 17, the covenant is made with him, and it's instituted at that point, and it has an internal aspect and an external aspect. And then from that point onward, through the rest of the Bible, that particular institution is consecutively re-established, and it's ultimately renewed completely and set in Christ, but it's still not finished, even for the elect today, because there's more to come. The kingdom is now for us, but the kingdom is also not yet in heaven. Let me explain what I mean. When God comes to Abraham and gives him the covenant, he uses particular language that is renewed throughout the rest of the scriptures. 
The, the words that he uses are particular. To Abraham and his descendants, God will be their God and they will be his people. That's the covenant oath that God makes with them. Now listen to some of the other scriptures that say the exact same thing in renewing that covenant as God progresses. To the Israelites, God says in Exodus 29, 45-46, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It's the same information and same words that God used with Abraham. To the Jews in captivity, as in Jeremiah 24, 7, it says, Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. The same information as God gave to Abraham. This is even stated again after the captivity and release in Zechariah 13.9. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. It's a continual renewal of the same information, confirming the covenant that God makes with Abraham. The renewal is seen in Jeremiah 31:33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The same information. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 6:16, As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 10, quotes Jeremiah and says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put their laws in my mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Over and over again, we find the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant that will be fulfilled in Christ and ultimately completed in the work of Christ, but not ultimately consummated when he comes. There's still a little bit more. Ultimately, in celestial glory, at the end of the ages, this covenant will be made whole and perfect. It will be finished for all eternity. Jeremiah 31:34 is explicit with this when it says, There will be no more teachers, there will be no more pastors, there will be no more doctors, no more theologians. All will know the Lord, all will know God from the least to the greatest. The scripture says in verse 34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now we still have pastors and teachers and people that teach us things about knowing the Lord. But in glory, the promises that God makes with Abraham, with the Israelites, in Christ, and fulfilling the scripture with Jeremiah and what Jesus does in this covenant, it is now and not yet. We wait for the not yet. We wait for the day when all will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. No more teachers. We will be in glory with him. Our iniquity will be gone. And we will praise him forever as the God who fulfills his promise to his elect servants. Christ fulfills the promise made to Abraham and his descendants forever. 
the covenant that Jesus makes is given all through the New Testament and attested to by all sorts of different people. The covenant that Jesus makes is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Jesus, in renewing it, in refreshing that covenant, makes it complete, demonstrates its fulfillment in its now and the excitement of the not yet. All sorts of people were excited to see that come about. Listen to what Mary said when she was excited about Christ's coming. Why was she excited? Luke 1.55 As he, that's God, spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. The same language that's used in the covenant. Mary was excited that Jesus had come to fulfill what God had spoken to Abraham. God was being gracious in fulfilling that covenant. Even Zechariah said in Luke 1, 72 and 73, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Even the apostle Peter says in Acts 2, 39, using the exact same language that's used in the covenant made with Abraham for the promises to you and your children and to those who are far off as many as the Lord God will call. All of the Israelites who were dispersed, as Joel's prophecy talks about, are going to be gathered in, and the covenant is going to be renewed. All those far off, all those Israelites far off, were going to be brought in for the promises to you and your children, just as God had said to Abraham. Acts 3.25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, in, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul, demonstrating the internal realities of the covenant, says in Galatians 3.16 that that seed that's spoken about in Acts 3 says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now he doesn't say, and to seeds, but as of many, one to your seed who is Christ. So the covenant made with Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. In the internal realities and substance of the covenant, the grace is given internally to those in Christ. Paul says in Acts 26.6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God. To who? To our fathers. Paul knows that the promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the promise of Jesus, is the promise of Christ. The Reformed have always held that in the effectual nature of the covenant, only the elect are benefactors of God's gracious condescension in Christ. They've always said that. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. This is the electing grace of God. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. That's the language that he uses. God does not universally condescend to all men, but the condition of the covenant is faith. And people only attain faith through grace. The covenant itself, though, is regarded in two ways throughout all of the scriptures. Either to internal essence, as in being saved in Christ as an elect, or as to the external aspects or blessings that attend the covenant in the visible church. Internal essence answers to God's grace given to an elect, but fallen human beings in Christ. It's God's graciousness 
to Abraham who was fallen, who was a pagan, who was brought out of pagan idolatry to serve God and to call on his name. That pertains to the invisible church in which the elect make that up. That is, the elect are the beneficiaries of all the federal blessings that make up the covenant of grace in Christ. They're blessed abundantly and forever preserved in that covenant, everything that Christ accomplishes. But the external aspect refers to the external calling of the gospel to all to repent and those that make up the visible church. Thus, many people are part of the visible church. They may be not elect and yet may taste of the heavenly gifts as Hebrews so states in chapter 6 and verse 10. The Westminster Larger Catechism in question 63 says, what are the special privileges of the visible church? The answer is, the visible church has the privilege of being under God's special care and government, of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints, the ordinary means of salvation and offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes in him shall be saved, and excluding none that will come unto him. It's the covenant of grace. It's how this works. That is, the non-elect are beneficiaries of all the federal curses then. If they don't repent and they don't come to understand the things of God, if they remain as Ishmael or Esau that make up the covenant of grace with Christ as judge. Christ, either in that covenant, gives them one of two things. Either blessing as the elect or cursing as those who outwardly profess but are not internally changed. These are those that are in the church, but not of the church. So in looking at the amazing condescension of God coming down to his people and saving them in Christ and offering to them in the covenant of grace life, we see God's powerful and wonderful covenant that he makes with his elect people. How is this grace then applied to us? The covenant of grace demonstrates to sinners that they ought to depend on God for salvation and not on themselves. The covenant of grace and everything that Genesis demonstrates and even what God did with Abraham, we should recognize that it is not in and of ourselves that we can be saved. It's not in and of ourselves that we are preserved. It is through God and through Christ alone. John Ball in the early 1600s said, the covenant of grace is that free and gracious covenant which God of his mere mercy in Jesus Christ made with man a miserable and wretched sinner, promising unto him the pardon of sin and eternal happiness if he will return from his iniquity, embrace mercy reached forth by faith and fiend, and walk before God in sincere, faithful, and willing obedience as becomes a creature lifted up into such enjoyment and partaker of such precious promises. These are precious promises that give us great enjoyment. God is infinitely wise in his condescensions for us. For wicked men would never come to be redeemed if it weren't because God would bend over and save them and pick them up. The fall of man didn't take God by surprise as if he was caught off guard or had something pop up and now he has to save people as a result. No, God has allowed man in his plan of redemption to so utterly sink into sin and misery into a 
completely ruined state through the fall, that he uses it as an occasion for the greater demonstration of his own glory through Christ. That's what he does. He made it that way on purpose. God took that which was evil and turned it into an event for which he should be supremely glorified by men. In this way, it's utterly apparent that man is completely and totally dependent on God for salvation. It is God's bending. Men are not saviors in any way, not saviors in any way, shape, or form. They are wholly dependent upon him. There's nothing in any way that we can do as sinners to accomplish or barter with God that would advance our lowest state and save us. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. We always hear that little phrase, dead men tell no tales. Well, they also make no deals. They make no deals with God. There's nothing that they can do. They can't barter with him to suddenly let them into heaven. Instead, the scriptures repetitively demonstrate the lostness of men and their inability to come to God to salvation. In fact, not only are they unable, but they are running with all their might in the opposite direction, seeking their own desires, seeking their own intents, even attempting to invent new ways to sin against God, if that were possible. Wicked men don't want to come to Christ. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to follow God. They're dead set against it. They would never do it, and they would never desire to do it. Redemption is utterly meaningless to them, and they strive to their greatest effort, though vainly, to push God in his ways out of all of their thoughts and out of all of their lives and try to satisfy themselves with other things that don't satisfy. Just as we read in Matthew today, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world? Not just gained a piece of land, not even gained a little country, but the entire planet. What would it gain him if he lost his soul? Some have sinned from childhood and sinned for a very long time, even into their old age where their hearts are seared, where any means of grace are brought before them around them that they become uncomfortable in its sight. They hate it. They actually detest it in their heart. I have a friend that attends an old age home, a nursing home, and he says one of the things that's most amazing to me is when I go there, how hard they are and how much they hate the gospel. They hate everything. They trust no one and have no desire to hear about the things of God. In their old age, they become seared. Though God condescends to men, he won't pardon their guiltiness, though. Though God has bent lower to bring fallen men to salvation, unless he changes them, they're never going to be saved. He must save them. As Jonathan Edwards preached once, God makes men sensible of their misery before he lavishes upon them his mercy and grace. He has to make them sensible of the bad news before the good news of the covenant of grace comes to them. Men must hear the bad news first. If men are utterly caught in a ruined state, then God must come to the sinner and change the sinner so that the condition of faith which is required to be accepted in the beloved Son, will be met. Without that, it will never be met. He must come to them. The Bible calls that regeneration. And from that change, as Craig taught Nicodemus 
In John 3, God enables the sinners to come to him and believe on him and receive all the benefits that the Son of God makes for him in that covenant of grace, which is an amazing thing. Jesus says people can't see, can't perceive, can't, doesn't, just doesn't understand, don't spiritually understand these things unless first the Holy Spirit bursts them from above. The covenant is made with Christ for his elect. So it is made with the elect in that way. And so he lavishes upon them all of his mercy and grace. God further glorifies himself in this very strange bending down to pick up the fallen sinner. For man then realizes his need of Christ and need of God. He realizes that nothing he could have done would have raised one degree of acceptance with God. And as a matter of fact, any attempt outside of the grace of God would have further condemned him because he would have done it with works of his own merits or thinking that they were somehow going to save himself without God's grace. God has placed Christ at the forefront of the covenant of grace, for in him he secures all the benefits that the elect receive. Listen to what Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. It says that, Jesus is given over to us by God's grace to bring us back to God. And saving faith and the giving condition that God graciously bestows to us in the, covenant, in the covenant of grace, we see why we ought to have a real and sensible acknowledgement of absolute dependence on him in redemption. The phrase, I did good today, will have new meaning to us because it's God working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure as a result of Christ's work, as a result of the Holy Spirit's application of Christ's work, as a result of God's decree to save us. You and I are simply the object of God's work and endowed with the rational ability to ponder and think of these things. And we should ever be discerning of God's work in and through us for his glorifying purposes. We should be sensible to the truth that God alone is to be exalted for all his work in, on, and through us. And we should ascribe to him all the glory of redemption. What do you do to demonstrate your acknowledgement that God has condescended in the covenant of grace by the death of his son for you? God has given his people two very important contexts in which to acknowledge their utter dependence on him in matters of salvation. In the private worship, in the family and individually, and in the context of corporate worship. Worship is giving worthiness to God. It's declaring his worth. How worthy is he for this covenant? And if the covenant of grace is the means by which God saves sinners through Jesus Christ, then it is vitally important to come to know this manner of salvation and be thorough in our knowledge of it. This is how God saves us. This is how he brings us to heaven. It's not enough for you and I to simply give God a nod and say thank you very much. God desires that his people are thoroughly acquainted with his way of salvation, even to teach and admonish these things among their children. Listen to what he says in Genesis 18:19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Not only is Abraham to know the covenant of grace, but he's to know the ways of God's work, that he walks 
righteously and justly and teaches his children to do so. To know God's manner of salvation is glorifying to him and to know his son who died for us. The covenant of grace or as some old time theologians said, the covenant of life opened, opens heaven even now to us. Even though we wait for the day that everything will be made perfect, that all will know him from the least to the greatest, they will remain with him forever in heaven without any sin or anything to hinder the face of Christ to our souls and to the enjoyment of our mind and our heart. Even now, we have some of that covenant revealed to us in great measure. Since we're redeemed, we see life differently than the wicked. Life to us surrounds the glorification of God and his work on our behalf. It's our whole life. It should be our whole life. Heaven in this way is now open to us that God lavishes upon us his mercy, his grace, his pity, to which we were once blinded. And we see other people walking around outside blinded to those things. It is one thing to have God in our thoughts and hate him as wicked sinners, but another thing to think about the things of God and the benefits of the covenant of grace that God has given us in a savoring light. That's what we should be doing daily in all of our vocations, in our dispositions and events and actions and everything that we do. Everything we view in this life as a portal and a doorway to the life to come. And that should color the way that we think about things. The way we think and talk and walk and carry ourselves should affect us. The company that we keep, the people that we go out with, the entertainment that we see, how we spend our free time, what we will buy or not buy, how we will treat our children or our spouse or our friends or anything that we do. The covenant of grace should color everything that we do in this life. The covenant of grace opens heavens to us and God bids us to live now as if we were in heaven. That's why Paul says, your conversation is in heaven. Your life, the way that you carry yourself, should be as though you're living in heaven even now. Jesus tells us to pray that way. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that has profound implications on every action and event that happens in our lives. The grace of God presses us to consider how dependent we are on God for salvation, for knowledge of him, and for our actions every day. What makes you different? What do you see in yourself that is different as a result of being a recipient of grace, if in fact you have been changed by this covenantal God? A question that we may ponder. Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would bless understanding this covenant before him. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you are the God of the ages. He who bent down to save us. What an amazing thing that you've given us, the covenant of grace made with Christ for his elect, that you may shower upon us great blessings according to your good pleasure. Let it be, O Lord, that we would heartily respond to that wonderful covenant and all of the things that we do daily in our life, every day and every action, every thought, every understanding. Help us, Lord, that we would glorify you and see our utter dependence on your grace and mercy and on the Savior who is the one who comes to crush the head of the servant, the seed of the woman.
We so pray and ask that you would bring these realities to our heart and mind. In the name of Jesus, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.